0: Profiles in Cinemania, Philip K. Dick Every generation, humanity spits out a couple of poor bastards who seem to have a high-voltage, direct connection to the universe installed in their brains. These are people able to turn out works of art or science that astound us regular folk with their beauty, their depth of insight, their prescience. Genius and madness being two sides of the same coin, however, that high-voltage line is usually so hot, it cooks their tender brain meats into insanity. After all, the light that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. Today's profile is a man who did for science fiction literature what Vincent van Gogh did for impressionist painting. Both men were extremely gifted artists who turned out vast quantities of work that were beautiful, compelling, and underpinned by utter, gibbering lunacy. Both lived lives of grinding poverty and self-abuse, and both slowly lost their minds before dying crippled and alone. Unlike Van Gogh, however, our subject at least got a fleeting taste of recognition and financial security a few months before his death. Whether this irony was a blessing or a final act of vengeance wrought by Vallis, the vast active living intelligence system whom the benighted referred to as God, is anyone’s guess. Philip Kindred Dick was born prematurely in 1928, one of a set of twins. His sister Jane died six weeks later, a trauma which led to a theme of phantom twins and body doubles recurring throughout his work. Although his birthplace was in Chicago, his parents split early, and he was mostly raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, which, incidentally, is still the most hip and happening spot for artists, psychonauts, and paranoid schizophrenics in the United States. Given that the man was at least two out of the three, he fit in pretty well. Dick first began writing science fiction during the 1950s, or the so-called Golden Age of Sci-Fi. For more than 30 years, Dick's only form of income was derived via churning out stories for the pulps, writing at a rate rivaling that of noted word vomiter L. Ron Hubbard. While his contemporaries crafted sprawling empires that envisioned humans transcending their baser natures via technology, Phil Dick saw technology as something that just broadened the range of options that we scared little monkeys had to fuck one another over, something about which we had overestimated our understanding and which could and did get out of our control. He was the king of paranoid dystopia, or perhaps that's only what they wanted him to think. Among his visions of the future, his readers would encounter an alternative timeline where the Axis powers won World War II, a post-nuclear apocalypse where the survivors are prey for self-replicating killer robots, a space colony whose residents medicate themselves into a massively multiplayer fantasy to escape the brutality of their existence, a panoptic capitalist hellscape where every human need is burdened with microtransactions, and if that one feels a little too on the nose, you can join our Patreon to hear more. His characters were nearly always subject to conspiracies concocted by some combination of corporate predation or government incompetence, or vice versa. Occasionally, it was just good old-fashioned brain lasers. What set Dick apart from his peers was his tendency to, oh, say about midway through any given story, begin knocking down the world he'd carefully constructed like a caffeinated toddler turned loose on a block castle. Phil Dickian is the term that has since been coined to describe the type of narrative mindfuck wherein reality breaks down to the point that the main character, and even the reader, can no longer determine what the hell is actually going on, let alone who they're supposed to be in the first place. The tendency of Dick's worlds to crumble may have been due to his writing style. According to Rolling Stone columnist Paul Williams in his biography of the man, only apparently real, whenever old Phil would get an idea for a story, he'd lock himself in a room with a ream of paper, a packet of typewriter ribbons, a coffee maker, and a bottle of amphetamines, and then he would write nonstop until he was finished, foregoing food and sleep. No wonder, then, that his more than 60 novels all tended to be on the short side, and were rumored to conclude with a random assortment of letters that one might get after falling asleep on the keyboard. It's a rumor we made up ourselves, but still. It's also unsurprising that he had five ex-wives and died of a stroke at 53. Some writers leave a legacy, others a support group. This situation probably wasn't helped much by his reported taste for hallucinogens and animal tranquilizers. Another vein running through Dick's body of work was his intense skepticism of mass media and entertainment. He saw the manipulation of reality, the creation of false realities, and hence the manufacture of consent as being the most dangerous power wielded by humanity against itself. In a 1978 essay, he said, quote, We live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by government, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups. I ask in my writing, what is real? because we are bombarded with pseudo-realities manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives. I distrust their power. It is an astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind, End quote. Perhaps it was a mercy for him to have died before the birth of the internet, the era of social media, AI, and behavioral algorithms. We are definitely better off without his Twitter feed. By the late 1970s, Dick was living in Orange County, Despite another infamous quote of his, quote, You would have to kill me and prop me up in the seat of my car with a smile painted on my face to get me to go near Hollywood, end quote. He had gotten into financial straits dire enough to sell options on two of his stories to a couple of fans, who also happened to be screenwriters. Five months before his death in February of 1982, and nine months before the theatrical release of the film adapted from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Dick caught a making-of segment about that movie on television. Despite the fact that Blade Runner was an exceedingly loose adaptation from his source text, he was reportedly ecstatic over it, and wrote to Lad Company exec Jeff Walker to say, quote, My life and creative work are justified and completed by Blade Runner, end quote. He also said, quote, Blade Runner is going to revolutionize our conceptions of what science fiction is and more can be, end quote. He wasn't wrong. Blade Runner may have been a highly influential cult favorite, but it had a notoriously tepid performance at the box office. It wasn't until 1990, when the Arnold Schwarzenegger-driven multimillion-dollar box office smash hit Total Recall, adapted from his We Can Remember It For You wholesale, that there was a run on PKD fiction. Soon, dick films were popping up all over. Adaptations of his work hit their peak in the mid-2000s, coinciding with the paranoia of the era immediately post 9-11. Speaking of irony, Philip K. Dick was survived by his children, Isa, Laura, and Christopher, who with the assistance of the aforementioned biographer Paul Williams assumed control of Dick's estate and established Electric Shepherd Productions in 2007, ESP has been responsible for licensing all subsequent film adaptations of his work. Just as Van Gogh's works are considered among the most valuable paintings in the world, Dick's fiction is considered among the most valuable property in Hollywood for adaptation, and there have been more than 50 of these to date. Among them, The Blockbuster's Minority Report, directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Tom Cruise, and Paycheck, directed by John Woo and starring Ben Affleck. Pseudo-realities crafted by very sophisticated men indeed. Make no mistake, all these dick pics are hot business. Since 1982, they have brought in more than a billion dollars in sales, which, if he had survived to see it, would have made him one of the highest-paid writers in the world, and which, given the additional fact that he has become Hollywood's most adapted author, would have made him even bigger than Stephen King. It seems old Phil's quip about dying before he got near Hollywood was more prescient than even he could have believed. This has been another Profile in Cinemania. This episode was written and performed by Ethan Ireland. Music by Meteor at meteormusic.bandcamp.com. Profiles in Cinemania is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC.